Lord willing, we will return to our Acts sermon series in a few weeks, but this morning we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. I know Mother's Day was last week, but I would like to again uh, express my admiration for moms. I'm, I'm amazed at their patience and the love they show, particularly any mother who has managed not to throttle her toddler. Now, I'm not inherently anti-toddler. Some of my favorite people were once toddlers. Um, but I just can't, I can't get over the incessant inquiries. Why? 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 A thousand times. Honey, don't put that in your mouth. Why? Because it'll make you sick. Why? Because there are germs on it. Why? (gasps) Mommy, why is the sky blue? Mommy, why are you pulling on your hair? Why, why, why? 300 times a day. And so to every mom who's had children reach the age of five, great job. Well done. I'm amazed. Now, in our calmer, less stressed moments, we recognize that this is normal and healthy and natural. For the world is all new to them, and if they're going to live in this world, they've got to learn some things about it. And so God has created them to be inquisitive. And the why is a completely appropriate and healthy question. As a pastor, I've had the opportunity to shepherd uh, uh, spiritual toddlers, new believers, and they ask a lot of why questions. It actually makes for very interesting Sunday school classes. But of course, I had to deal with them once or twice a week. I didn't live with them 24-7. So again, my hat's off to moms. Now, there is another type of why. Not the, the, the inquisitive why of a toddler, but rather the slightly more defiant why of a teenager. You need to make your bed. Why? I'm just going to sleep in it again tonight. And that is not asking about, that's not because of curiosity about beds. They're not wanting to know more about a bed. Rather, they're wanting to know more about the limits of mom's patience. They're wanting to test how far they can go and get away with it. That why is usually met, frequently met. Many great, wonderful moms over the years have responded to that one with the simple line, because I'm your mother and I said so. By the way, mom's great line prepares them well for obeying God by faith because I'm your mother and I said so. And as a pastor, I've heard that kind of why question also. Why? And I've been asking myself why a lot these last few weeks, particularly as it pertains to worship and even more particularly as it pertains to corporate worship, gathered worship. Why? Why do we worship And why do we worship together? Would it be okay to continue to worship individually in our homes? Is that, why would that not be all right? And the passage that I think is probably used most often to respond to that is here in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 25, it's translated different ways at different times, but if, and it's also the parts of speech are a little weird, but if I pull it out of context, it says something like this, do not forsake gathering together. It's an imperative, it's a command. Do what we're doing right now. Come together. 
Now, very often when that verse is taken out of context, it's given, it's, it's applied in the mom responding to teenager sort of way. You know, why do we have to go to worship? Because God said so. Because I'm your God and I said so. Now, that's an okay answer. And there are a lot of times that God does not give us the why behind things. But on this occasion, he does. As I considered this question of why we worship and why we worship in a gathered way, I started looking at Hebrews 10.25 in the broader context. And I thought, well, I'll just take a few verses before it and after it. And I said, I can't do that. So I went a few verses forward, and I ended up deciding we're going to look at all of Hebrews 10. Because the whole thing is a wonderful explanation of why we worship. Now, if you're uh, uh, familiar with uh, my preaching style, you probably remember there's been some times when we've tackled these longer passages where I will uh, uh, read a portion, stop, comment on it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And then at the end, we'll reflect on the entirety of the passage. Therefore, let's stop now and ask the Lord's guidance in understanding his word. Lord, we do ask, we do desire that you would uh, 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 bring your spirit, send your spirit among us, that he would work in me, that I would deliver only what is consistent and in line with your message, and that he would work in the hearts of each one of us this morning, that we would hear that message, and that we would understand how it applies to our lives, and that we would desire to incorporate it into our uh, growing life of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we know that there is only one source for error-free, absolutely true information, and that's God. With him, there is no fake news, there is no half-baked science. There is only truth. So if we want to know with absolute certainty why we worship and why we gather corporately to do it, we must know his word. So join me now in reading Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. And like I said, we will be stopping occasionally. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect uh, those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let me stop here. I said we were going to put Hebrews 10.25, that command to not forsake gathering together, into the context of Hebrews 10, but we now need to take Hebrews 10 and put it in the context of the entire Bible, particularly the book of Hebrews. So in short, the book of Hebrews is essentially an argument for Jewish Christians not to revert back to their Jesusless Judaism, their pre-Messiah Judaism. That's why it's titled Hebrews. It's a letter to Jewish believers. In, 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 in uh, challenging them to stay in Christ. So that's kind of the overall message of the book of, uh, of Hebrews. And we see now how in chapter 10, the author takes up that argument. He says, you want to go back to Judaism, but you're going to go back to sacrifices that didn't work. 
They didn't have any value. Now, I want to give you a little taste of what those sacrifices are like. So stick your finger there in Hebrews 10 and flip back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And we're going to look starting in chapter 1 of Leviticus. And I swear Leviticus was there early. Okay, there it is. I'm not going to read any one particular verse. Rather, what we're going to do is just look at the, the, the headings that are put in here. Now, these headings are not scripture, but rather the translators kind of summarizing what comes next just to help us find things. It's a useful tool, but it's not divinely inspired. But nevertheless, they're instructive here. So let's take a look at Leviticus. What's the heading, at least in my Bible, above chapter 1? Laws for burnt offerings. Chapter 2, laws for grain offerings. Chapter 3, follow along with me, laws for peace offerings. Chapter 4, laws for sin offerings. Chapter uh, 5, oh, there's no heading on 5, oh, the middle of 5, laws for guilt offerings. Middle of 6, we see uh, the priests and the offerings. And notice that 7 has no heading, it falls under that same heading that we saw in chapter 6. It's not until we get to chapter 8 that we see something in the book of Leviticus other than the issue of offerings. We can turn back to Hebrews now, but that gives you some idea of how important this sacrificial system was in Judaism. There were a lot of different sacrifices, a lot of different offerings for a lot of different reasons. And you see, what happened was this. The people are struggling in their Christianity. See, in, in Judaism, there was something they could do about their sin. Feeling guilty? There's a guilt offering for that. Struggling with sin, there's an offering for that. A little, a little uneasy with what's going on in your life, feeling a little, ah, you're not happy with what God's doing, there's a peace offering. You actually go to the temple and you sit down and you eat dinner with God in the temple. The peace offering. For everything, there was an offering and it allowed them to do something about their sin. But the Hebrew believers, the Jewish believers, are struggling now under Christianity. All we're doing is just sitting around believing in Jesus. That's, we're not doing anything. There's nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling the weight of my sin, and I feel the need. There's nothing to do. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you're tempted to go back to Judaism. You're tempted to go back to all that sacrificial system so that you could feel better about your sin. But he then quotes Dr. Phil. And he says, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? Really, you want to go back to Judaism? Have you stopped to think about what it means? It doesn't work. It never was meant to work. Because you have to keep doing it over again. If this system was taking care of your sin, you wouldn't have to go back. But you keep going back over and over and over again. Because it isn't effective. And he stops us right there and says, you need Jesus. And he's going to explain why in a moment. Because everything else is ineffective. Now we are not tempted to offer sacrifices of this nature. But we sure do the same things to try to deal with our sin. 
When Becky and I were first married, I, had, I was a teacher and I had a summer job selling fireworks, one of those little roadside stands. I don't even actually remember if I've even seen those in Maryland, but other places, you had these little roadside stands where you could stop and buy fireworks. And I, the company I was with, there's some of the, uh, the, the, the people had been there for years and years and years doing this as a summer job, earn an extra few thousand dollars in the summertime, and they all fought over the same location. They were all trying to, you know, cajole the owner of the company, let me have that spot because it's the big money maker. And so I finally said, what is so special? I knew the address. And what is so special about that spot? And they said, you don't know where that is. I said, well, I kind of know vaguely where it is. And they said, well, here's the key. It's right across the street from the only strip club in town. And men walk out and they walk across the street and they buy a big old armload of fireworks as a guilt offering to their family. We make offerings. We feel at unrest about our, our situation. Unrest because sin. Maybe not our own sin. That's a guilt offering for their sin. Some of you are saying, I'm at, I'm at odds, not because of my sin per se, but because of sin in general and the way it's affecting my relationships and my, my stress and my job and everything else. And we're stressed out and we look for a way to comfort ourselves other than Jesus. So have you put on the COVID-19 yet? I'm getting close. That's stress eating. That comfort food, thinking that'll bring me comfort. I'll feel better then. But if it's going to work, why do we need the third serving? That's the point here. That no other system of dealing with our sin is going to work. They're all ineffective. Let's continue reading, picking up in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Our author is quoting the Psalm 40 that we use to open our service. There is a, a quote from it, and he's putting it in the mouth of Jesus. Now, none of the Gospels ever actually record Jesus saying this specific thing, but the Gospels admit that they're not exhaustive, they're not comprehensive, so it's very possible that Jesus said this at some time, and it just wasn't recorded in one of the Gospels. Nevertheless, the author puts that in Jesus' mouth. That's Psalm 40. We pick up in verse 8. When he, Jesus, said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see how now how the author turns this around. He says it was never about those sacrifices. Even the psalmist of old knew that that's not what God really wanted. What God wanted was obedience. And that we can't do. But that's what Jesus did. You see there in verses 7 and 9, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That's what God wants, and that's what Jesus did. And that's what we could never do. And then our author brings it home. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There are not enough fireworks in all of China to alleviate our guilt. Nor is there enough cheesecake to comfort us because of the difficulty we're going through because of sin in this world. 
And by the way, I, the reason I equate the comfort food to the, it's the peace offering. You sit down with God in the temple and you eat with him. That's why I'm putting that comfort food and that peace offering thing together there. Uh, um, it's just, if we are hoping for food to comfort us, if we are hoping that our guilt will be alleviated by buying the right gift, we are hopelessly lost. What the sacrificial system of God himself could not accomplish, surely our feeble attempts cannot accomplish. But we are sanctified, it says. If we are in Jesus Christ by faith, we are sanctified. That's the message to the Hebrew believers. You're worried about how you feel. That's not about your feelings. You're going to go back to the sacrificial system because you don't feel like you're being, doing anything about your sin, but your sin's been taken care of. You don't need to do anything about it. So don't cover up your bad relationship with you know, inappropriate videos or lustful books or whatever you might be tempted to use. Don't turn away from the pain of your life and then turn into, I don't know, 10 bowls of ice cream. Rather, turn to Jesus. Like the song says, like the lady's saying, the difficulties of this life are exactly the thing that are supposed to drive us to our Lord. Picking up in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. We long for Jesus to be with us. We wish he was here. But the author says his thereness is exactly what proves that he's effective. For if he were like every other way of dealing with sin, he'd have to keep doing it over again. And he'd have to keep coming back. And he'd have to keep... But he didn't. For Jesus, it was dead, raised, ascended, seated, done. His very, the very fact that he need not be here any longer with us is proof that his work is effective. He's not like the other priests. He accomplished true saving uh, 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 offering, guilt offering. None of our self-justifying, self-comforting, uh, uh, Jesusless techniques can say that. They have to be repeated. If my guilt offerings were that effective, well, let's just say this, FTD would be out of business. Becky would have gotten one bouquet 25 or 35 years ago, we'd been done. My guilt offerings don't work like this. My words keep coming back and hurting. My sin keeps causing problems. I have to keep dealing with it when I deal with it myself. But it has been dealt with for me. And now we look closely at verse 14. Pay attention to this verse. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me read that again. By a single offering. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Pay attention to the tenses of the verbs. The first is a perfect tense. Has perfected. If you don't remember your eighth grade English class, well, let me help you out. A perfect tense is something completed fully, totally in the past. Perfect because it's completely done. An absolutely accomplished, finished thing. He has perfected. Believer in Jesus, you are perfect. 
in Jesus Christ. It's not a question of how you feel. It's a question of what God has said. And you are perfected. And you're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, I don't feel that way. It's not how it seems to me. So what's going on? Well, notice the, the, the tense of the last verb. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Present tense. This is an interesting sentence. We have a, per, a, a, a perfect tense, something completely in the past, our perfection. And then we have a present tense, something that is ongoing and happening right now, our sanctification. What you got going on here are two different views, two different aspects. You see the problem? You're looking at your life like it's a 3D movie and you ain't got the glasses to see it right. And it's all a blur. It's a mess. Nothing looks right. You can't, and you can't stand. You can't even, it's painful to look at. But God sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ. And everything comes into perfect focus. And everything looks exactly the way it's supposed to. That's the tension here. And oh, we're going to have that tension. We're going to always struggle with that. It's always going to bother us that we don't feel our perfection, that we don't feel our sanctification. We don't observe it and see it like we wish we could and we would. But that's exactly what living in this life is doing for us. Have you stopped to think about your stress over the last few weeks and months might be exactly the place God is trying to work on you? Have you become impatient with those whom you are, uh, uh, what I'll say, cooped up with? Are you praying to God for patience? Are you recognizing that that's a place where you are weak and it's the trials of this life that are pushing you to him to be sanctified in that area? Have you become fearful about your future and the finances and those sorts of issues? Have you considered asking God, teach me to rely on you? Teach me to rest in you? Teach me to look for the next life where I will have all security for all eternity? That's the process of the ongoing sanctification. Don't try to cover up the painful things. Don't, don't try to, to uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, block them out with too much television, you know, too much streaming, too much stuff. You rather use the pain and run to God and say, make me more like Jesus. Let me honor him in this place and in this way. We pick up in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with the, uh, them after those days. This is the Jeremiah quote we read earlier. Declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Our author now quotes uh, the, you know, the, the, the new covenant passage out of Jeremiah. And he says this, you want to go back to the sacrificial system of a Jesusless Judaism? Because you, you, you feel pain, you feel guilt, you see your sin and you don't feel like you're doing anything about it? He says, don't you understand? The, the, the prophets of our own Judaism told us that the day was coming when that would be set aside. Jeremiah foretold the day when we would enter into a new covenant. And that's what we have. 
And you notice what he says here. Judaism itself promised that under the new covenant, it was the Messiah of God who would remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. If you trade in Jesus for any other way of dealing with sin, you are trading in the only way to have your sins dealt with. Pills and alcohol may help you forget about the pain of sin, but they will not blot out God's memory. The only thing that can make God forget about your sin is being in Jesus Christ. And when we are in Jesus Christ, it says very plainly, He will forget about our sins. You cannot drown your pain, your sin, your guilt in the bottle. But you can wash it away with the blood. Where the bottle will not work, the blood will every time. Oh, we will, like I said, sanctification is an ongoing process. It'll still hurt. There will still be pain. But you will know, at least intellectually, you will know it's dealt with. It's taken care of. But the bottle cannot alleviate the blood obliterates. Because our sins are forgiven, that was in verse 18, we no longer need to make any offering. Now look what happens in verse 19. Just a real quick summary of what we've covered so far. So what we see so far is that Jesus has died once for all, made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. And because of that, we have been perfected and are being sanctified. And um, God, because of Jesus, God will forget and has forgotten our sins. That's the groundwork that the author has been laying down. And now look where he goes in verse 19. Therefore, Therefore, because of all that we've said up to this point, now recognize what that means. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of Jesus, God forgives and forgets sins. Verse 17. And because God has forgiven and forgotten our sins, even if we have not, we have confidence to enter his presence. You see the logic here? If our sins are not forgiven and forgotten, we cannot go to God. He is holy, and he will not allow us to come into his presence. But he has forgotten them. And so you can go into his presence. Imagine you were given the opportunity to visit any place you wanted to visit. What would it be? Some uh, exotic cultural site somewhere around the world? Some important part of U.S. history? Some important part of your own family's history? The battlefield where your great-grandfather died? For me, it would be the moon. If I had an opportunity to go to the moon, I would jump at it like that. Probably about halfway there, I would think to text Becky and tell her where I was. I'd love to go to the moon. And our author says, you understand what opportunity you have? Do you understand where you can go? If you're in Jesus Christ, you know what is now open to you? It far surpasses going to the moon. You can go to God. You can go into the presence of the Almighty. We started this whole thing with the question, why do we worship? And we now have our first answer. 
We worship because we can. We worship because we can. Because Jesus has saved us. Because of Jesus, our sins are forgotten. Because of Jesus, the the price has been paid. Because of Jesus, we are perfect and being sanctified. Because of Jesus, God forgets all of our sins. So now we can enter into the presence of God. And who wouldn't want to do that? Honestly, let's stop and be honest for just a moment. There are only two categories of people who would not want to be in the presence of God. Those, because of a sincere fear of their, because of their sin, who would be afraid of what would happen to them in God's presence, and those who just flat out hate God. But to the former group, he says, you're taken care of. Your sins are taken care of. They're forgotten. They're covered. Now, I understand that there are times and places and things that do prohibit us from coming to worship. I get that. But when that happens, it ought to feel like a real missed opportunity. It ought to weigh on us. Not in guilt, not guilt, but sadness. I just couldn't go this time for whatever reason. Because the author here says the first and primary reason we worship is because we can. What did our one song say? He dwells in the presence of his people. It is when we are gathered together that we meet with God. How did Jesus say it? Where two or three are gathered in my name. Be careful there. It doesn't apply to your family. Well, two or three of us in our family are Christians. You're gathered in your family name. You're gathered as Shaw's then. Not as Christians. It's when we're gathered in his name that he is present with us and among us. When he speaks to us through his word. And when we can't be a part of that, it ought to hurt. We worship because we can. And why can we? Because Jesus died for us, because God has perfected us, and because God has forgotten our sins. And so we pick up in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. It's not about you being faithful. It's not that you've kept the law. It's not because you're without sin. It's because the one who promised is faithful. He promises to forget your sins. He's forgotten them. So we get to go into his presence. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And here's the verse we've been looking at. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Why worship? Here's the second reason he gives us. Why, you know, why, worship? why worship corporately? So that we can stir one another up to love and good works. Yeah, sometimes that is through the sermon. And I suppose if you're sitting at home, you can get that. But the idea here is that we do it for each other. That we come together. I'm praying for you. How's that going? This is, we're going to try and go do this. Would you like to be a part of it? We stir one another up to love and good works. The bottle may numb me and pleasures may comfort me and TV may distract me, but they are all futile. It's when I come to church 
when I am with you, when I am immersed in God's word, that I am reminded that Jesus didn't put a band-aid on my sin. He washed it away completely. That's a second reason for worshiping. We continue with the text in verse 26. Now, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more is punishment? Do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We worship because we can. And now we see that we also worship because we must. Notice how the call to come to worship, to be stirred up in love and good deeds, is set in juxtaposition to this idea of deliberate sinning. This is the contrast. This is what we're going to fall into. If we don't come to worship, if we aren't stirred up to love God and stirred up to love one another and stirred up to do good deeds, we're going to fall into the trap that the Jews are falling into here. And we're going to want to find some other means other than Jesus. And when that happens, we run the risk of trampling, I was going to say trampling underfoot the grace of God, trampling the grace of the Spirit. We worship because we can, because Jesus has made it possible. But we also worship because we must. Let's finish out the passage. Verse 32, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. In effect, our author says, you remember how committed you were to worship in the early days when your love for Jesus was burning hot? Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Hang on to that view, that vision, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We worship because we can because Jesus died for us, because in him we are perfected, because in him our sins are forgotten. We worship because we must. If we do not come and get constantly stirred up to love and good deeds, we will fall into deliberate sin, and we will trample underfoot the grace of God. And it call, he, he reminds us, he, he closes with this call to perseverance, even when things are difficult, when you face death, at the hands of the government, because you worship. And after that warning, look how he closes out so beautifully in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and preserve their souls. Toddler of God, you might ask with all serious in, in, in inquisitiveness, why do we worship? And the author says we worship because we can. Because it's a great opportunity to go to God. 
teenager of God, you may be growing weary of doing what you're supposed to do. And you might be asking, oh, worship, why? And he says, because you must. Because without it, you will fall away. You cannot stay on the narrow path yourselves. There will be times, there will always be reasons in our lives where we will miss corporate public worship. But it should hurt. It should pain us. We should long to get back with the people of God. We should do everything we can to make public corporate worship the highest priority in our lives. Because we can and because we must. Let's pray. Lord, work in us an understanding of what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. And in understanding it, understanding what he's done, his perfect sacrifice, the perfection we have in him, the forgiveness and forgetness of, forgottenness of sin in him. And let us come joyfully with great confidence, with great assurance of faith, as the author says. Let us come into your presence to do so with eagerness and anticipation. Lord, let us also heed the warning, recognizing that we also worship because we must, because it is the safeguard against our own flesh, because it is what keeps us on the straight and narrow, because it is what protects us from ourselves and from the world. And so, Lord, we ask that you would use that also to motivate us to be with worship, to be here in worship. To our brothers and sisters who cannot be here this morning, Lord, be with them. Give them uh, uh, endurance and perseverance. Work in this world that they would be able to join us very soon. Let all of us long to be in your presence among your people, worshiping you. Because we must, but mostly because we can. We thank you for Jesus who made that possible. Amen.